Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington, your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. And tonight we will continue our reading of the William Spill book, The Underground Railroad, which was published in 1871. Tonight we're going to hear about a love story from Mr. William Jordan, who swam through the swamps and hid out in caves in order to get to freedom. Also made to reunite with his wife, who is still being held in bondage. I would also invite you to send a Facebook request to our executive producer, Leslie Gist, that's L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T, to keep up with what's going on here at the Gist of Freedom. And we're coming to you over www.blocktalkradio.com. I'd also like to make you aware of other websites, uh, facilitated by the Gist of Freedom. Uh, BuriedBlackHistory.com is B-U-R-I-E-D, BuriedBlackHistory.com. Also, these shows are archived and are available for free via iTunes at www.BlackHistoryUniversity.com. Also, if you are a genealogist, a scholar, an author. We're always interested in great guests. And you can contact Miss Guest. You can email her at Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at thegiftsoffreedom.com. So if you have uh, something you'd like to share with our community, with the world, the World Wide Web, uh, anything in the news, just get a hold of Miss Gist here again. And uh, what's going on in the news right now? Well, I guess everybody's been keeping up with the Trayvon Martin case and uh, the uh, gentleman who, oh, gentleman, I should say the unconvicted murderer uh, whose wife now is divorcing him, considers him dangerous. There was a video that made the rounds on Facebook and other places on the web uh, showing him being arrested. And uh, 
she is finally, uh, I guess she knows his character, knows what he's capable of doing. And uh, allegedly has filed for divorce. But I understand that recently um, she uh, withdrew the charges. Here again, probably still fearing for her safety. Also in the news here, uh, there was a black man, uh, an alleged Buddhist, who uh, murdered, killed 12 people in Washington, D.C. at a naval station. And I hear that number might have risen to 13 now. And uh, not much else is known about him, except that he was a practicing Muslim. Also, uh, in the news here recently, um, at the Kennedy Center, this past weekend, September 15th, there was the premiere of the four little girls, the 50th anniversary. Uh, it was a huge success. Hopefully you joined in uh, to watch that presentation, which was directed by Ms. Uh, Felicia Rashad, who did a great job. Uh, tearjerker there towards the end. They also had a panel, uh, discussion panel, following that uh, presentation. Thought it was very well done. Uh, musical, a lot of songs, dialogue, etc. Yes, there's a parade coming up in Harlem here pretty quick. Harlem Week Parade, New York City. In Harlem, home of the Renaissance. Okay. William Steele. Well, William Steele was the leader of the Underground Railroad, stationed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, he wrote a book in 1871 called The Underground Railroad. We're going to be going to a tape or a reading of that book. Mr. Steele was also a co-founder of the Vigilance Committee there in Philadelphia and uh, that was committed to helping uh, slaves who were escaping slavery. And uh, provided clothing, shelter, money, safe passage all the way from the south to uh, Canada. Mr. Steele was also a philanthropist, established schools, YMCA, there in uh, Philadelphia, an infirmary, uh, an early day freedom fighter was Mr. William Steele. Okay, it looks like we are now ready to go to our tape for the reading. Section 31 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Underground Railroad, Part 1 by William Still. Section 31. 
William Jordan, alias William Price. Under Governor Badger of North Carolina, William had experienced slavery in its most hateful form. True, he had only been twelve months under the yoke of this high functionary, but William's experience in this short space of time was of a nature very painful. Previous to coming into the governor's hands, William was held as the property of Mrs. Mary Jordan, who owned large numbers of slaves. Whether the governor was moved by this consideration, or by the fascinating charms of Mrs. Jordan, or both, William was not able to decide. But the governor offered her his hand, and they became united in wedlock. By this circumstance, William was brought into his unhappy relations with the chief magistrate of the state of North Carolina. This was the third time the governor had been married. Thus it may be seen that the governor was a firm believer in wives as well as slaves. Commonly he was regarded as a man of wealth. William, being an intelligent piece of property, his knowledge of the governor's rules and customs was quite complete, as he readily answered such questions as were propounded to him. In this way a great amount of interesting information was learned from William respecting the governor, slaves, on the plantation, in the swamps, etc. The governor owned large plantations, and was interested in raising cotton, corn, and peas, and was also a practical planter. He was willing to trust neither overseers nor slaves any further than he could help. The governor and his wife were both equally severe towards them, would stint them shamefully in clothing and food, though they did not get flogged quite as often as some others on neighboring plantations. Frequently the governor would be out on the plantation from early in the morning till noon, inspecting the operations of the overseers and slaves. In order to serve the governor, William had been separated from his wife by sale, which was the cause of his escape. He parted not with his companion willingly. At the time, however, he was promised that he should have some favor shown him, could make overwork and earn a little money, and once or twice in the year have the opportunity of making visits to her. Two hundred miles was the distance between them. He had not been long in the governor's plantation before his honor gave him distinctly to understand that the idea of his going two hundred miles to see his wife was all nonsense, and entirely out of the question. If I said so, I do not mean it said his honor, when the slave, on a certain occasion, alluded to the conditions on which he consented to leave home, etc. Against this cruel decision of the governor, William's heart revolted, for he was warmly attached to his wife, and so he made up his mind. If he could not see her, once or twice a year even, as he had been promised, he had rather die, or live in a cave in the wood, than to remain all his life under the governor's yoke. Obeying the dictates of his feelings, he went to the woods, for ten months before he was successful in finding the underground road, this brave-hearted young fugitive abode in the swamps, three months in a cave, surrounded with bears, wild cats, rattlesnakes, and the like. While in the swamps and cave he was not troubled, however, about ferocious animals and venomous reptiles, he feared only man. From his own story there was no escaping the conclusion that if the choice had been left to him, he would have preferred at any time to have encountered at the mouth of his cave a ferocious bear than his master, the governor of North Carolina. How he managed to subsist, and ultimately effected his escape, was listened to with the deepest interest, though the recital of these incidents must here be very brief. After night he would come out of his cave, and, in some instances, would succeed in making his way to a plantation, and if he could get nothing else, he would help himself to a pig, or anything else he could conveniently convert into food. Also, as opportunity would offer, a friend of his would favor him with some meal, etc. 
With this mode of living he labored to content himself until he could do better. During these ten months he suffered indescribable hardships, but he felt that his condition in the cave was far preferable to that on the plantation, under the control of His Excellency the Governor. All this time, however, William had a true friend, with whom he could communicate, one who was wide awake and was on the alert to find a reliable captain from the north, who would consent to take this property, or freight, for a consideration. He heard at last of a certain captain, who was then doing quite a successful business in an underground way. This good news was conveyed to William, and afforded him a ray of hope in the wilderness. As Providence would have it, his hope did not meet with disappointment, nor did his ten months' trial, warring against the barbarism of slavery, seem too great to endure for freedom. He was about to leave his cave and his animal and reptile neighbors, his heart swelling with gladness, but the thought of soon being beyond the reach of his mistress and master thrilled him with inexpressible delight. He was brought away by Captain F., and turned over to the committee, who were made to rejoice with him over the signal victory he had gained in his martyr-like endeavors to throw off the yoke, and of course they took much pleasure in aiding him. William was of a dark color, stout made physically, and well knew the value of freedom, and how to hate and combat slavery. It will be seen by the appended letter of Thomas Garrett that William had the good luck to fall into the hands of this tried friend, by whom he was aided to Philadelphia. Wilmington, 12th month, 19th, 1855. Dear friend William Still, The bearer of this is one of the twenty-one that I thought had all gone north. He left home on Christmas Day, one year since, wandered about the forests of North Carolina for about ten months, and then came here with those forwarded to New Bedford, where he is anxious to go. I have furnished him with a pretty good pair of boots, and gave him money to pay his passage to Philadelphia. He has been at work in the country near here for some three weeks, till taken sick. He is by no means well, but thinks he had better try to get farther north, which I hope his friends in Philadelphia will aid him to do. I handed this morning Captain Lampson's wife twenty dollars to help fee a lawyer to defend him. Footnote. Captain Lampson had been suspected of having aided in the escape of slaves from the neighborhood of Norfolk, and was in prison awaiting his trial. End footnote. She leaves this morning with her child for Norfolk, to be at the trial before the commissioner on the 24th instant. Passmore Williamson agreed to raise $50 for him. As none came to hand, and a good chance to send it by his wife, I thought best to advance that much. Thy friend, Thomas Garrett. End of section 31. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida. Just finished reading section 31 of the William Steele book, The Underground Railroad, which was published in 1871. And um, hearing the story of William Jordan, alias William Price, who was a slave in North Carolina uh, to a female who later married the governor of North Carolina. And the reading brought out that the governor and his wife were equally cruel to their slaves. Um, William had been promised that he would be able to visit his wife, which was some 200 miles away 
and uh, and that promise was eventually broken. So rather than uh, put up with the cruelty, William was willing to go out and swim through swamps, live in caves, etc., so that he could get out and see his wife when he wanted to. Another love story coming to us from the Underground Railroad. And um, you can read about um, a possible cave in Tribble County, Kentucky, that slaves probably hid out and used as a hiding place during the Underground Railroad. And um, you can do that at uh, USA Today. Um, Go there and Google their archives, and that article should be about February 2013. That talks about a, a possible cave. And uh, speaking of swamps, there was a great swamp in the state of Ohio that um, was used by uh, during the colonial period where Washington, George Washington, And this uh, swamp ran through Virginia and the Carolinas. All the way up through Ohio there. And that swamp was uh, dredged out by indentured uh, workers and by slaves uh, to grow hemp. And uh, they hired a slave trader by the name of Christopher Gist, G-I-S-T. And uh, to survey that land, which was in violation of a treaty with the so Let me help you out, Preston. Let very me help much you out. <laughs> struggling. Help. You are struggling, but it's okay. Um, I'm not typing fast enough, and I know that is probably not easy for you to read. But um, the Dismal Swamp ran through Virginia, North Carolina, and other places. And I ran upon uh, the marker just by chance where it stated that George Washington was part part owner of a company called the Ohio Company. I already knew about the Ohio Company through um, my research with the Gisses. But I came upon this marker on Route 17 in uh, North Carolina on my way to a funeral. And it said George Washington had this land, this marker is where his land was, and it was part of Ohio Company. And the Ohio Company, in competition with tobacco, thought they could uh, dredge out their swamp and compete with uh, tobacco, with hemp. And um, they asked uh, Samuel Gish, which is from England, and he was once a white indenture himself and became a wealthy 
uh, when his uh, master um, uh, killed over unexpectedly, and he married his master's wife, and that's how uh, Samuel gets got out of his white indentureship, and he later became friends with George Washington, who was very young, and his brothers, who were all in the military. Um, they secretly went to um, the higher area, Pennsylvania area, and um, surveyed the land. They hired Christopher Gist. He was not a slave trader. He was a fur trader in some other um, business. He was a Quaker. Um, Christopher's family, I think he was a third-generation um, colonist, and uh, they were known for surveying the land in Maryland. I think their name is still on some parts of the highway in Maryland. And um, they hired uh, Christopher Gibbs to survey the land, and uh, the Native Americans found out what was going on, that the tree was being broken, and they retaliated, and they burned down Christopher Gibbs' um, settlement. The settlement is still there uh, in Ohio, Pennsylvania area. I have never been there, but that is not the same Gibbs settlement in Ohio by Cincinnati where the Underground Railroad is known for the Ohio River. Different section. Um, okay. Any questions? Well, so the uh, Gist Settlement, there was a Gist Settlement in North Carolina? Uh, what it sounds like it was in... No, 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 no. It was in Ohio and Pennsylvania area. The first one was uh, of Christopher Gist from the 1750s. That's where he lived amongst the Native oh. Americans. He was so the, friendly. Mm-hmm. That's the one that was destroyed by the Indians. Right. Um, okay. He had a very good relationship with the Native Americans to the point where his son actually uh, married or at least made a child named Sequoia. Sequoia uh, ended up uh, being credited with um, inventing the uh, Cherokee alphabet. So the Gist line, the white Gist line, um, you know, has been here uh, during colonial days. Um, well, all the way back to the Revolution, wasn't it? Yes, prior to re- prior to Revolutionary Revolutionary War, Samuel Gist. Um, fled. He was a loyalist. He went back to England when the uh, Revolutionary War broke out. And when he did that, his daughter uh, took all his property and um, turned them into plantations. And the plant and the plantation or the property was formerly called Gould Hill, G O U L D, um, in Virginia. I went and saw the land out three years ago. Took pictures of uh, the Gulhill Plantation where she had converted the uh, land to plantations and things of that nature. And um, when he died, he will, and he threatened in his will to bequeath her only one shilling if she did not feed her face. And she hired what I consider to be a um, team of sorts. She hired Wickham. Wickham was the lawyer who helped Aaron Burr get off for murdering Alexander Hamilton. Oh, yeah. She had a series of lawyers. Uh, they convinced the legislators in Virginia to um, 
to change the law just for these gift settlers and allow him to free them, allow his daughter to free over 900 slaves, probably a period of 10 years this went on. Um, when I went there three years ago, I'm going in circles for about an hour, and finally I mm-hmm. go to the tax office, and I said, you know, I'm looking for Gould Hill uh, Plantation. She was like, it's a highway. That whole area that you were driving up and down was the land. So that was, the, I mean, he a lot of land in three different counties in Virginia. So it took a great deal of time to free free everyone. Of course, you had people which uh, were part of uh, the first owner, whose name was John Smith, uh, the, the man who owned him, Samuel Gist. His sons were complaining, saying that he had no right, that his daughter had no right to set these slaves free. These were, uh, this was his father's land originally. So there was a whole lot of um, legal battles, and still is really, about um, the slaves at that time and now about the money. He also left, I guess, left a lot of money for these slaves in England. So the story is very extensive. Uh, he didn't have any sons, so he was looking for what they call the lucky gift. And if you could um, prove that you were a relative of his, there was some money uh, for this person who could choose, you know, prove that they were related to a gift or something of that nature. Hmm. So he set aside a pool of money for that activity. Yeah, for for the mm-hmm. yes, and unfortunately, um, this uh, one settlement, just six settlements that have been, um, uh, I would say dignified. Uh, what would you call it? I'm sorry, I'm really sleepy. <laughs> this is pretty late for me. There's about six settlements that have been designated historical sites. And one of them, the marker was stolen. And I went down to three of the ceremonies in Ohio. Someone stole a marker within a year. There was another one where a gentleman has his whole family and a bunch of gift settlers. This is right by Ripley. A lot of them are buried there on that gift settlement. And um, for some reason, that county, I can't remember the name of the county, is Brown and Highland. Can't remember which one refuses to give him the deeds to the land, even though he's been paying taxes. And he's well over 70, 80, he's probably in his mid 80s. And uh, he's been fighting the county um, for the rights to those deeds, uh, which belong to the settlers. I saw a few that still live there. Um, and since I went to visit in 2004, my friends out of Ohio have been sending me newspaper clippings about the markers being stolen and yeah. also about the county dumping, literally dumping garbage on the gift settlement. So um, it's a, a great story, but it's a sad story, bittersweet. So these uh, stolen markers, have any of them been replaced? It's only one that was stolen. No, they just chopped it down. Took a um, 
took something to it, you could see a nice smooth cut. Took the pole down the whole side. Oh, okay. And they fenced it in like it, as if it was in a cave, which we thought was extremely weird. Why would they fence in a marker? For the, they fenced it in. And it was still stolen. But it's also the Dismal Swamp. And what's fascinating about the Dismal Swamp, uh, it there when we went, when we saw the, the first mark with George Washington, we kept driving. We started seeing more markers. And finally, we got out. There was a place to pull over and look at the markers. And they had markers out there that talk about the Underground Railroad. And then I had enough nerve to go driving within in the swamp area, so I backed out. Um, it was for tourists, but it was still, you know, there was signs saying, at your own risk. So we went as far as we could. We finally backed out. Um, the bugs were so big, they were gigantic. I've never saw so many big bugs hitting a window. Um, pain, it was just crazy. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't help but think that these people thought this was a place of refuge, that alligators, reptiles could be better neighbors, could be better people, or could be more humane and compassionate than a slaveholder. So it just speaks to how devastating and evil slavery really is for people to consider a snake as a better neighbor than a human being. Wow, yes. Than an owner or an overseer. They'd rather deal with snakes and alligators, as you indicate. Live out in a hollow log, the blues man says. Mm-hmm. That has And there's um, pictures in the, in the magazine Harper's uh, Weekly. And I couldn't find any pictures from on Google, but there are several pictures um, that I used from the Harper's uh, Weekly years ago that showed um, African Africans living in the swamp, dredging it. There was only one on Google, um, but the story says a lot about how terrible slavery is and was. You know, that you had a whole group of people, a whole class of people. They call them maroons, um, tri-racial, that lived in, in the swamps. Oh, yeah, that happened quite a bit, uh, especially in the southeast part of the United States, down around Florida, uh, mm-hmm. Louisiana, any of that swamp country down there, the maroons. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty well documented. Uh, you put some of these pictures up on your Facebook page? Some pictures are up, but as I said, I was pretty annoyed trying to find the pictures I was really seeking, which was the ones showing Africans working and, you know, like uh, living in houseboats that they made and their homes yeah. were built on stilts in the water in the swamp. So they were like... Um, very creative, and, and they were chosen. The Guinea people were chosen because Guinea is known to uh, be a swampland. And um, they chose the Guineas to come over 
to do this type of work first, as I said, as indentures. And that lends, uh, that story lends itself to the stories that I've heard through the Steele family, William Steele's family, that they come from, you know, Guinea, uh, from Guinea, and um, one of them, one of the stories that they to be part of the Guinea Prince, uh, descendant mm-hmm. of the Guinea Prince. So uh, it is true that, from my research, that the Steels more than likely did come from Guinea, um, and they were indentured. They weren't uh, involved with chattel slavery because they came in earlier, um, you know, during a colonial period in the Maryland area, and that's where the Gist name is connected. Uh, the Steels uh, charity escaped from Maryland, uh, Eastern Shore, which is uh, near the Great Dismal Swamp. So you can connect the dots easily and see how that gift name and the steel name are connected. Yeah, uh, com- it comes together there. Mm-hmm. Through that Dismal Swamp. And the Dismal Swamp, yeah. Yeah. And there's a good book about it um, that I read years ago, Royster, R-O-I-S-T-E-R, um, The Fabulous, The Fabulous Dismal Swamp, and it talks about George Washington being a failure as a businessman and his involvement with the Dismal Swamp. Okay, it was called The Fabulous Dismal Swamp? Right. I'm trying, I'm too lazy to get up and look at my my books, but... Um, yeah, my name well, is Royster, and in fact, another article that I read, my research back then, uh, it was in a magazine, and, um, the author of the magazine just sent me an email in the last month, and he said he was donating all of his research, all the material he had used to, um, research long article, extensive article he had written about the dissettlement to um, a historical society. So the two primary places I had gone to I used for bibliography information uh-huh. uh, that book and that magazine. They had at least 200 sources in each one. And from their bibliography, I was Find other books. Right, I got the book. It's called The Fabulous History of the Dismal Swamp Company. And it's by near Charles Royster. R O Y S E R. R O Y S E R? Yep, R O Y S T E R. S T E R. Royster. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I can't think about can't think of the gentleman's name who wrote the magazine article, but he was good. That was excellent, too. So that is our, our show for tonight as far as um, William Steele, these love stories. Somebody made a comment on Facebook about uh, Django, and they tried to compare this story of Mr. Jordan. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you have anything to add to that? No, I don't, but I don't know that that, uh, I mean, this guy, uh, 
was free, went back, slept out in swamps and whatnot. And you must remember, our listeners must keep in mind that the William Still story is factual, mm-hmm. whereas the Django story is somewhat fictionalized. Um, mm-hmm. They had to sell. Um, had to make money at the box office and whatnot. But there are true stories out there, and if they would keep up with the gist of freedom, uh, mm-hmm. they'll learn about those stories, those real stories. Yes. We try to direct you to the primary sources, you know, so that you can get firsthand, as close as firsthand as you can, to authentic stories and places you could go to even visit these sites. Um, and with that said, we're going to have a guest on next Sunday or this Sunday? I think this Sunday, right? Um, uh, this Sunday in Solomon uh, Northrop story. Right. So she's coming on. For 12 years. Uh, Renee Moore. Right. True story. Right? True story? Yes. She founded a um, a Solomon Northrop Day in New York City. And uh, it is a true story. Not New York City. Saratoga. Saratoga, New York. And uh, Mm -hmm. she's going to be in uh, this Sunday to talk to us about that and about her work and uh, what involved her, what motivated her to establish this. And and uh, mm-hmm. she has a, a Northrop, Solomon Northrop Day every year for the last 15 mm-hmm. years, I believe. Right. And they had a viewing, a um, preview of the film. A preview um, of the film, they, I think it's due for release in October, October the 18th. Right. She's going to talk about it. Right, and they're going to have another um, sneak peek of the film again this Sunday, so that's why she wants to call in and talk about the event. So I'm looking forward to learning more about Northrop, and um, I think we should just share a little bit more information about Solomon as far as history. Um, Do you recall the Liberty Laws and what happened with Solomon? Well, I know he was a free man. Uh, initially, and was uh, captured by a posse out of the South, taken to the Deep South, and sold into slavery. Mm -hmm. Spent 12 years there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe his wife assisted in getting him uh, free. Mm -hmm. Um, But when he initially, uh, I think he married while he was in slavery, because at one hour it seemed that he would never uh, get released. But um, there has been a documentary on Solomon Northrup that uh, Miss Moore will probably talk to us about that came out a number of years ago. forget who starred in that. Uh, I think it was a made-for-TV documentary. 12 years in slavery. I don't know how I was able to let you forget. We should have talked about yesterday was the anniversary of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and I just uh, learned something. In researching um, the anniversary, I discovered that the original Fugitive Slave Law of 1793, which was really written as a clause during the... Um, 
Constitution, um, formation of the Constitution, that it really wasn't enacted to 1793. And it it had very little to do with catching a slave. It had something to do with protecting the uh, enslaved person or the free black from being kidnapped. It turns out, it's on my Facebook page, that these ruffians came across the border and, um, again, breaking all sorts of treaties. They said in retaliation for someone being killed, they decided to kill um, some Native Americans at random. And um, somehow it came out that while they were doing this killing, they just kidnapped a gentleman by the name of John and stole him, kidnapped him, put him into slavery, sold him to someone. So the person that uh, ended up buying him discovered that uh, while they were uh, mapping out, surveying, the land between Virginia and Ohio or Pennsylvania, I think it was Pennsylvania, they were surveying, it was Pennsylvania, they decided that uh, he discovered that he was on the Pennsylvania side, which, of course, with the Quakers, didn't allow slavery. And so he uh, boarded or um, leased out John, and John, as he put it, um, was seduced into Escaping. I don't think you have to be seduced to, to escape the slavery, but that's what they say. Uh, so he takes off, and um, a lawsuit uh, is now generated because of these transactions. Pennsylvania governor wants him, wants these men arrested, uh, and that's how the first Susan Slave Law came about, and it was stating that uh, those ruffians... Bounty hunters had to get a warrant first. Now, throughout history, people are telling a story totally different, that it was enacted uh, to protect the slaveholder. But if you look at that story, you can see that it was enacted because uh, these people went out and kidnapped a free man, similar to Solomon Northrop. But in 1850, they took away those um, mandates about having a warrant. Now, we have a caller. Uh, Caller, if you have something to say, uh, please say it. Um, If not, uh, we'll just uh, let you remain mute. Are you there, caller? Good evening. What is Corey? Yeah, down in Chattanooga. How are you doing? Great. I invited Corey to come on, Preston. Okay. Uh, Corey, would you like to, um, you know, introduce yourself to Preston and to the audience? And I'm going to put myself back on mute. Thank you, Corey. I just want to say thank you for inviting me on the call. Um, I appreciate it. Um, Just there's a couple of things, um, and I think that I uh, made note of one of them on the Facebook pages. This is just information that we don't get in history. I mean, we take 12 years, 16 years of schooling, and we don't get the whole stories. We get half of the story, but we don't get stories like this that, that gives us a reference point of, 
okay, how did some of these mentalities start? How did some of these attitudes start? And, you know, and it's directly related to, you know, instances like this. So I think it is extremely important that you do what you do, you know, posting information that I wouldn't get otherwise, that I read to my daughter, and she's five, and, you know, and she asks some of the the hard questions, well, Mommy, why would they do that? You know, why is why was that okay for them to do that? And, you know, I have to dig deeper to be able to answer a five-year-old, but this is the understanding she's getting at five. So we have to do this same kind of, you know, as they say, a, the re-education of the mind to get our kids to understand we were here before, you know, but these mindsets came from somewhere. And for them to get an understanding of who they are, they really need to know their real history. So, you know, I just want to applaud you for doing what you do and, and giving me more fuel to educate the kids that I come in contact with. Exactly. Um, I'm thinking of the book. The title is A Miseducation of a Negro. I can't remember who wrote exactly. that book right now. And uh, which has gone on for too long in our history. And this history that uh, the gift of freedom brings you also gives you some insight into today's activities, uh, into exactly. the political activities, um, the so-called Tea Party. Um, you know, I believe are the descendants obviously, of some of those folks who stood around trees that had strange fruit hanging from them. And you wonder um, where those descendants are. Well, they're probably in the Tea Party today. Right. understand this if you get this history uh, from the very beginning. And uh, I think you're absolutely correct and reading to your daughter at the age of five and uh, setting the record straight, so to speak. Because even well, in our... you know, Go ahead. You know, and another part of that is understanding that we are a whole lot closer than than what we have been taught. You know, when the things happen in, when uh, the earthquake happened in Haiti, you know, a lot of us, to be honest, we're complacent about it, like, you know, oh, that's way over there, because we didn't really have a connection to Haitian people. Well, mm-hmm. if you look through history and you re- and you see what really transpired in American history, you will see that Africans were taken to Dominican Republic, to Haiti, to, you know, the Caribbean islands first, and that and and then to America, but had they not come with their knowledge of agriculture of cotton and agriculture of sugar and you know the very thing in tobacco, the very things that America is founded on with you know slavery was only because the Haitians and Dominicans and you know the people from Caribbean had that knowledge that they brought with them. Well, even, you know, as as bad as 
slavery is and was, that's what made America America. That's what made it, you know I mean, in the sense that that's what made other people a whole lot of money. But yeah, created, created that the was wealth, their yeah. foundation of wealth. Yeah, that was their foundation of wealth. But had it not been for, the, you know, the people on those islands, you know, it's kind of like, okay, so what would have happened had they not had that knowledge? So we're a whole lot closer to them. You know, those people way over there, they want to, you know, oh, they speak Spanish. You know, that is one mute point of the fact that they are, you know, they are our history. And the connection is not there at all for, you know, for American kids to, you know, especially where I am. I know a few um, people here who are from Dominican, but, you know, this was like, oh, he's black, but he speaks Spanish. Oh, then he ain't really black. Like what? <laughs> like how does that work? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I'm like, how, how do you figure that? Oh, well, he speaks Spanish, so he's not really black. And I just, I, you know, those moments in time, you have to think and go. Let me rewind for a minute. Did I just really hear what I thought I heard? Okay, let okay. me let me have this conversation with someone. <laughs> so. You know, that is, like you said, we have to re-educate, you know, our kids on who we really are. Yeah. What are you doing there in uh, Chattanooga? Are you involved in opening I am, yeah, I am in the process of um, writing a proposal for a charter school, not only for here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but my aunt is doing the same um, charter school in Alton, Illinois. And it is based on Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence, just that we learn a bunch of different ways. Um, but basically it is so that, you know, the the charter school movement started so that, you know, a group of folks could say, hey, we can teach the standards. You know, we we don't want to do it the way the school district does it, but we can do that. And, you know, you put it through your school district and they say, okay, go for it. Well, I kind of looked at that model and said, "Well, you know what? When we when we have been in school, they had they had the choice of educating us with what information they wanted us to have. Well, using that same charter school model, I can make the choice, or our you know our entity can make the choice of what it is we're going to teach, still following that same you know meeting the standards." Uh, requirement. So to be able to go back and use that charter school system to be able to educate our kids on real history and using up-to-date media such as the internet and you know not outdated books when they were out when they were printed they were outdated. So we have mm-hmm. so many more avenues of information and accurate information and web pages from you know and Facebook um, from people who are you know, putting correct information out there, thank you, um, that we'll be able to turn around some mindsets and turn around some uh, information and hopefully guide some kids in the understanding that you are so much more than what you have been told. And with that, have pride in who you are, have pride in what you do, 
and have pride in the precedent that you are going to set for your grandkids' grandkids. And I say it only takes one generation to change your mindset, which it really does. I have three boys who are 20, 18, and 14. And since day one, yes, and this five-year-old, and <laughs> since day one, it was, is she close to me? Open close right there. Yeah. <laughs> you want to put her on? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, she'll probably talk your ears off. But um, so the mindset was that, you know, for them, I said, you guys will go to college and you will be entrepreneurs and you will have the mindset of owning your company. So one of my sons asked me, well, why do I have to go to college? I said, you go to college for the experience. Just like when they were in school, I told them, you you go to school to let them know what you already know. Because my kids basically already knew what the teacher was going to teach them. They just exactly. went to school to show, them what, you know, to show them what they already knew. And so now I have one at Arizona State and one at Pittsburgh Tech and one is uh, a sophomore, um, and he's taking college classes now. But for all three of my sons, their mindset had to be changed to, oh, you just go to college after high school. You don't really have the choice of hanging out, lollygagging around, still trying to find yourself. We did a, I did an exercise with them to really get them to understand what is your purpose, what is your passion, what is it that you have a burden about society on, you know, what, what is, is it that you want to change. Let me interrupt here a minute, Corey. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think of Bill Cosby referring to black folks as no growth? Have you heard that comment? No. No growth. No growth. Uh, Oh, yeah. Um, I really only got secondhand information. I didn't really read it myself, so yeah. I don't know that. Um, no grows as in Negro. And he was yeah, what is No grows. And I still hear that little five-year-old in the background. You want to put her on and let her say a couple of words? Um, Michaela, come here. Hey. I'm sorry? Michaela, come here. Is it Michaela? Michaela. Okay. Um, okay, one second. Say hello. And hello. Hello, Michaela. How are you? What grade are you from, Michaela? Kindergarten. Kindergarten? Are you enjoying? What are you learning? Who's your teacher? Um, he's teaching me different. Miss Sam. Okay. Miss Gutierrez and Miss Schaefer. Okay, sounds like there's more than uh, uh, one teacher in the classroom. What's your favorite doll? D O L L. Um, they they have they have two different 
centers of each kind, one's computer, one journal, one's one's name chasing, one one's theme and we're learning about our five senses and we talked about touch, taste and smell and sight and we talked about taste and we we've been tracing different letters each day and we've been doing different types of papers and the teacher gives us homework to do at home and she also gives us a a paper that has reading logs and we have to read every night before we go to bed. Wow. Read every night before you go to bed, huh? We watched you enjoy it? Me and my, mm, yes, and and me and my mommy watched Sister Rosetta start on PBS on PBS dot org. Oh yeah, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Okay, she was a gospel singer, wasn't she? Sister Rosetta Tharp. She was born in 1931, and she was a guitarist. Born in 1931, and she was a guitarist. Yes. Did you enjoy that show? Mm-hmm. And a long time ago, back when I was four, we watched... A show that a little boy named Johnny died and he turned and his skin color turned gray. Remember when we watched that? He turned into an angel. And he really did die. <laughs> turned into an angel. Mhm. And he turned gray, don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I certainly appreciate your coming on to talk to me. My name is Preston. My name is Michaela. Yeah, Preston Washington is who you've been talking to, and I really appreciate um, your coming on to talk to me. I'm sorry? And some sign language. I know Spanish, English, and sign language. Wow, Spanish, English, and Spanglish? And and English, Spanish, and sign language. Sign language. Okay. Boy, you're going to be a well-wounded young lady by the time you hit college, aren't you? (laughs) Yes. Yes, you are. And they're teaching me how to chase my names. Okay. You're learning how to trace your name? 
Great. Do you watch Do you watch Doc McStuffin? Do you watch Dr. McStuffin? Do you watch Dr. McStuffin? Do you watch Dr. McStuffin? Doc McStuffin. Doc McStuffin. Dr. McStuffin. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not understanding what she's saying. Doctor or somebody. Doc McStuffin, a little girl on TV. Doc McStuffin? Oh. Never heard of no. You know what? I actually don't watch TV. I don't have a TV. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> yeah, we don't. It's like, I mean, she watches shows on PBS Kids, but. I figure $150 a month, I can put that towards her going to school. She can I know you're right on that. I know you're right on TV. Yeah. <laughs> well, I used to well, work I at the call center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to work at the call center where people called in about their, their cable bills. And mm-hmm. I just, I was like, why would I spend this kind of money a month on nothingness? And, and I don't watch it anyway. So I was just like, you know mm-hmm. what, no, take this thing out of here. <laughs> Well, the reason why I asked about Dr. Stuffin is because she's uh African American girl who uh is a doctor and her mom is a doctor. And oh no, her I show haven't. this it's... nature. Yeah. If you could buy oh, it on really? D V D if you could buy it on D V D I highly recommend it. Um okay. I love the show. But um, Yeah, I will but, definitely um, look for it. But yeah, mm-hmm. like I you know, I just and it's probably been two and a half, three years. So she hasn't grown. She, we haven't had a TV since we've been here. So I, my grandmother was like, "Well, I'll buy you one." What is it? I was like, "No, I just don't want one." She has one that she watches DVDs on, but mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody's like, "Are you sure, Corey?" But you know, she watches enough things on PBS and her own DVDs and. Mm-hmm. Um, just not anything we really missing. Now I do have to admit I do have to go watch uh my Pittsburgh play on Sunday. So I gotta watch football. But other than that, <laughs> I'm good. Okay. Okay. Anything else you wanna add, uh, Corey or Preston before we call it a night? No, I'm just No, uh, I just wanna implore to everyone to not rely on the school system to educate your kids. You, they are not going to get what they need. They are not going to get their understanding of their identity and who they are in the school system. So please stop thinking, well, I send them to school to be educated. That is so not enough. And with the um, availability of technology, there is no excuse why our kids, you know, don't know who they are. They can get on Facebook five or six hours a day. They can get to, you know, some websites and some places with information that is really going to be helpful to their soul and to their understanding. And, you know, most importantly for me, like I was saying for my sons, is that help them understand there's assessment tests, there's things that they can do to really, you know, I don't know where people are with their spiritual walk, but really get an understanding of what their purpose is, and that will drive their goals. 
if if we can get our kids to understand their purpose here on this earth while they are here, then we can guide them educationally, career wise, you know, um, you know, the way that they spend their money, the way that they donate their money, um, the way that they make money. I, I have to, but they got I have to, to ask you. I, I have to ask you this, Corey, before you go. Final question. You said uh, don't rely on the public education or Uncle Sam to teach your child. Um, you reminded me of uh, Jaden, Jaden Smith, Will, mm-hmm. Will uh-huh. son. Did you hear yeah. or read about what he yeah. said? Could you just tell the audience? <laughs> yeah, he said um, pretty much if you want kids to be educated, they need to drop out of the school system. And to be honest with you, I agree with him. I mean, Jaden is one of those kids you either love him or you hate him. And, you know, on that point, I think he hit it on the nail. There's some kids that are just not going to learn according to the system that is set up in the public school system. Me sitting here listening to a teacher talk for 45 minutes and then I'm supposed to remember what she said, it's probably not going to work for me. But for, you know, many kids, um, you know, give them what it is you want them to do. Have Give them materials and tell them to make a birdhouse. Oh, they'll figure it out and have it done in 20 minutes. But mm-hmm. our teachers are not teaching that way, and that's one of the reasons why um, we started this charter school is because it is project-based. You know, we know you know geometry if your birdhouse comes out straight. If it comes out with a little lean, then we know you got to go back and, you know, cut something or, you know, reconfigure an angle or something. But the kid will know, you know, or the student will know, okay, my house is kind of leaning to the left. What is it that I need to do? But, you know, and then it goes back to, you know, going way back. At one point when we actually had fathers in the house that taught their kids carpentry, that taught them plumbing, that taught them how to tile something, that that taught them how to change the oil in the car and rebuild the engine, and all of those things that we took for granted or they took for granted, those that is how a lot of children learn. So skills. you don't have the father in the house, you don't have that experience, it's hard to get an understanding because, you know, when you was at home with Dad and he had you <laughs> out there fixing the garage and you had to cut angles and all this mess, now you knew how to do it. You may not have had the paperwork because you haven't taken geometry already. But now you get to school and they're telling you, oh, you need to do Now he has a point of reference. Oh, that's what my dad was talking about. Okay, mm-hmm. I see what they're talking about. But when you don't have a point of reference at all, it makes it a whole lot different, more difficult. So true. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Corey, for keeping your promise and calling. Um, we enjoyed uh, listening to you and your little one. She's extremely bright, and I hope she starts a blog talk radio show very soon. <laughs> That's what she needs to do. She needs to have, like, a peer radio show, and her and her friends yes. just sit together and talk. It is hilarious. They yes, talk about everything in the workshop. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you for you know, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it, and uh, definitely, like I said, we'll definitely keep uh, 
keep your Facebook on my page and, and sharing, you know, the information that you that I get from you because that's the only way that we're really going to be effective and make, you know, make headway in the teaching our kids, you know, their real history. So I thank you for that. Well, thanks. I appreciate the compliment. Um, and uh, to our audience, uh, Preston, you get the last word. Well, I'm just glad that Corey again called in. I want our listeners to join us this Sunday. Uh, Renee Moore will be talking about uh, what's going on with her up there in Saratoga, New York, in reference to the Solomon Northrop story, a man who was free, kidnapped, taken to slavery, held in bondage for 12 years, and his miraculous rescue. So be sure to join us this Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I mean, a Sunday, I'm sorry. This Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And that's it. I have it. I'm done. Good night. Good night, Leslie.